So I didn't say it was going to rain. <laughs> I'd forgotten about hail and snow. And <laughs> I thought that was perfect timing. It's also nice to feel the, the stillness in the hall. Interesting to feel the contrast. We sit indoors, we sit outdoors, and just feeling the the benefits of both. Both have a lovely quality. Sometimes we come in here after a busy day, not busy, but active day, walking, hiking, a lot of stimulation. Sometimes it's very nice just to feel that cocoon stillness and the, the way these trees hold us. So there's a line from the Buddha I like very much where he says, luminous is this mind brightly shining, luminous is this mind, brightly shining for those who have cultivated and developed their mind, but is obscured by visiting tendencies, habits. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, clear and brightly shining but obscured by visiting tendencies of mind. And so the meditator cultivates and trains in order to free the mind from obscuration, from its ten habitual tendencies, samskaras as they call them in Buddhism, latent tendencies, these habitual places we get caught, we react, we resist, we in contention against reality. And so our practice is a support for understanding those habits of mind that cause us unnecessary suffering. There's plenty of suffering in life, and then there's what we do to add to it that makes it much harder and much worse. And um, being here as being anywhere is no different that we will encounter and drag around those same habits of mind that, um, that obscure our mind's natural peacefulness or radiance or clarity or happiness. So that's why we practice. Thich Nhat Hanh puts it this way, he says, Buddhism is simply a way to live well. Happiness is available. Please help yourself. So, and I think it's very much in the spirit of the Buddhist teaching. Here's a path. Check it out. 
put it into practice if you like. If you do, you'll probably suffer less, but the choice is yours. But it only works if you practice. (laughs) It only works if you apply some effort and dedication and intention and work, the spiritual work. So, from another tradition, the Sufi tradition, uh, poet Hafez puts it this way, he says, you have all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. <laughs> but of course we do. You know, we wake up in the morning, we feel a little, you know, we didn't sleep well, and the bell goes, and we immediately feel reactive and grumpy, and then we get in the hall, and there's someone meditating, look like they're almost achieving nibbana, and we feel comparing mind and judgment, and then we, you know, we just brew this stew of, negativity and grumpiness and comparing and judging and and then we wonder why we feel like crap. You have all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. So notice the ingredients and notice how you mix them. On retreat that manifests as the comparing mind. Right? Anybody doing any comparing here? how athletic someone is, how outdoorsy someone seems, how meditative someone is, how still in their meditation they are, how holy they look, whatever it is. We compare ourselves painfully. Of course, we make ourselves deficient usually. Well, sometimes we're inflated and we think, you know, I got this down, look at that lot, this sloppy lot. Mostly we're on the deficient spectrum. That's where the suffering comes. But sometimes inflation can also be equally suffering. It has pride and it's insecure. Or judging is another common uh, habit in, 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 in retreats. We judge ourselves, we judge our mind, we judge our meditation, we judge our concentration, we judge our practice, we judge how we walk, how we eat, you know, how much we eat, how little we eat. The mind that's constantly self-assessing uh, negatively, um, comparing, judging, another ingredient, uh, overanalyzing. We get into also a lot of an- analyzing ourselves, our meditation, our psychology, our neurosis, blaming our parents or whatever, and another you know, one of many habits. Right? So we all have a particular penchants for a particular style. Feeling inadequate, looking for proof of our inadequacy. Feeling deficient, looking for proof of our deficiency. Anyway, on it goes. And then later in the poem, uh, Hafez says, you have all the ingredients to turn your life, your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. And so I think of practice, retreats, as cultivating wholesome ingredients, right? We, we're cultivating awareness, patience, kindness, presence, acceptance, allowing, love, presence. Many, many ingredients that when we cultivate and practice and and abide in, we feel 
more ease, we feel more well-being, we feel joy at times, or at least peace or contentment. So that's partly what we're doing here is understanding our inner landscape and the ways that inhibit our capacity to be at ease, to live with freedom and well-being right now as you're sitting, right now as you're eating your lunch, right now as you're lying awake in your tent cold, right now as you're doing the dishes. We have an ability to abide with ease and peace. So we're inclining our mind, our heart, our life, our habits towards that which is onward leading to that which inclines us towards feeling well-being, to feeling peace, to feeling clarity, understanding, love. Inclining away from reactivity and these habitual tendencies, which requires mindfulness, requires awareness, self-awareness to know what tendencies lead to harm, what tendencies lead to well-being, what thoughts and mental habits and, and, ten, and, and patterns are skillful and which ones cause us a lot of pain. And so as I've been speaking about today, paying attention to not just what's happening, but your relationship, your attitude, the way that you're relating to experience, right? There's a lot of experience here that's lovely, and there's a lot of experience here that may be not so welcome, whether it's your achy body, or your chronic pain, or the sadness in your heart, or being freezing in your tent, or cold in the meditation, or irritable, or whatever condition that you're feeling, how are you relating to that? What in that relationship contributes to well-being and what contributes to you feeling less at ease, more reactive, more unhappy? So I love that it's cold. I mean, I have preference that it's warmer, but I'm okay with the cold because it's good for practice. You know, you go to some, especially Zendos, Zen monasteries, there's no heat. You sit and you deal. <laughs> and, you, and if you moan, you suffer. You whine and complain, you suffer. If you can find some capacity to open and receive, there's less suffering. You're still cold, you still might prefer a nice warm zendo, but here it is. So, how are we relating to the cold? Sometimes okay, sometimes okay, I'm cold and no big deal. Other times we contract, we fight it, we complain, we blame the teacher and the whatever, and why are we doing this? And why didn't I bring my big down blah de blah? And, you know. And, and we suffer. Right? Same cold, different outcome. Right? And this, you know, as, as we witnessed at lunch, sit after lunch, 
Half of you are in t-shirts and half of you are in down jackets. Same conditions, different relationship. Neither is better or worse, they're just different ways of relating, different inner experiences. Some of you might love the cold but hate the heat. If we're here in July and it's 90 degrees and brings out another attitude. And mostly in, in any nature retreat that I do, both will happen in the same day. You know, we're craving warmth, we sit in the sun, we start baking and burning and we start hating that and then we're wishing it was cooler and vice versa. The mind is rarely at ease. And the third noble truth of the Buddha is non-reactive, non-contentious relationship to life, to experience. How do we find peace in the midst of our changing circumstances? Whether it's temperature, whether it's the changes in our body, whether it's the changes in our relationship, or in the world, or in the environment. How do we relate to all that? How does our attitude support or hinder our ability to be with it and to respond skillfully? If we're caught in contraction and reactivity, it usually obscures clarity. We don't usually see so well when we're reacting, when we're fighting and resisting and complaining and judging. And And not to beat yourself up for when you get reactive, because that's part of being human. It's partly what we're learning about. But to feel compassion, actually, because when we're caught in reactivity to something, Painful, suffering. So when we can bring a kindness or a forgiveness or a tenderness or spacious acceptance to the fact that we are reactive, it makes the reactivity easier to be with and more likely to release. This is from Jan Chosen Bay's Zen teacher. She writes, In this passing moment, all things come to be, and I vow to choose what is. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. Therefore, I vow to choose this moment's entrance gate. So in Zen, there's a bodhisattva vows, and one of them is to enter whatever Dharma gate, entrance gate, uh, is confronting us. And that's, you know, the Dharma gate, any moment, uh, presents itself as an opportunity to practice, to awaken, to understand, to let go, to feel compassion.
So it doesn't matter what's happening on this retreat or anywhere really. What matters from the perspective of practice and, and, and awakening is, is our attitude, is our reactivity that causes more suffering, our capacity to meet it with presence, with wisdom. And that doesn't mean being passive. Right? So she's talking about when hungry, when starving, I choose hunger. You know, you could eat something. There's a story of these two yogis bragging about their teachers, or maybe three, t- three yogis. And one says, oh, my master's the greatest. He lives on one rice, grain of rice a day, and uh, and then the other ma- the other person, the other yogi says, oh, "My master's better. He only sleeps one hour a night." And the other one says, "Well, oh, I think my master's superior. When he's hungry, he eats, and when he's tired, he sleeps." <laughs> so it's not about you know some you know silly spiritual ideal. It's about you know, living wisely, relating. If you're cold, you wrap up, come inside. If you're too hot, you peel off layers. It's not like we, we, we don't... If we can choose a less suffering way, then we choose that. When, there, when we can't choose a less suffering way, that's when we practice. That's why we, in meditation we sit in the fire of our experience and we make the intention to deal with whatever arises. Discomfort, ants crawling up our legs, being hot, being cold, being bored, being restless. Can I sit in the fire of that and find a capacity to embrace it, to hold it, to meet it? So you might reflect for yourselves what are these ingredients that turn my life into a nightmare? What are the obstacles that the Buddha is pointing to that obscure my natural clarity of mind? Probably yesterday, not many people would say that their mind was luminous and clear, feeling foggy and tired and jet-lagged and just arriving in in the first day Often it's a little groggy. And, but reflecting for yourself, what are the obstacles, hindrances that obscure your natural well-being? I notice, you know, I've been doing this practice now for a long time, 30 years or more, maybe more, maybe 35, I don't know. Long enough to know something, hopefully. <laughs> um, uh, that I notice that mostly my mind's pretty peaceful. I can still get reactive and I, and I get impatience. Patience is, is not my virtue. So I get reactive to things in the moment, um, but uh, mostly small things. But in general, the, I notice that my inner state is mostly 
one of kind of well-being, kind of ease and um, contentment. Minds relatively quiet. A lot. Not all the time. Not always in meditation either. But there's a general sense of uh, non-contention with, with, with my experience, with life, mostly. I'm now learning to apply that to the political arena we're living in, where I have a little more reactivity. Mostly a little more sadness and a little incomprehension and at times a little despair. But there's still this this contention with with that reality because it's so painful. So this is a piece I like to read. Some of you have heard this before. From Archbishop Francois Fenelon, who I assume was French, but I don't know, um, from the 16th century. And he's speaking about light and light being a metaphor for awareness or meditation or mindfulness. And he says, as light increases, the inner light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings and thoughts. We never could have believed that we'd harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. While our faults diminish, the light by which we see them becomes brighter. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. Bear in mind that we only perceive our malady, our stuff, our neurosis, our reactivity, when the cure begins. The cure being the very awareness, knowing, seeing, understanding that accompanies the, the, the arising of those experiences. So the cure is in the knowing, the cure is in the awareness. When that light, as he's referring to, when that awareness isn't there, then those maladies, as he's, as he's talking about them, the maladies, you know, the reactions, the you know, whatever our habitual patterns are, when we don't see them, we're acting out from them, causing a lot of suffering to ourselves and others. When there's awareness, we start to see more of our stuff. Have you noticed that? The more awareness the more stuff. <laughs> you think, oh my God. And he says, you know, we stand aghast at ourselves. You know, we couldn't believe we'd harbored such things. And when you really pay close attention to your mind, it's, you know, it can be a little embarrassing. It can be so petty, so judgmental, so mean, so cruel. We nitpick people apart just because we seem to enjoy it. You know, or we're, we're inflated and we think we're better than all, all kinds of ways that we, um, you know. Cause some disharmony. 
So the, the, the key is awareness. So in our meditation, we come across a lot of different things that obscure this brightness of mind, this cl- clarity. And the Buddha spoke to them as the hindrances, as these five habitual patterns, and I'll speak to a few of them, partly as it relates to our time here and, and to the theme of working with change. And, um, and so the first deep-rooted habit is our craving for um, pleasure, sense desire, he called it. Uh, our habitual, this momentum to wanting one pleasure after the other. And woe betide anything that gets in the way of our pleasure and our sense desire. So, look at that, it's snowing again. So we come on on a nature retreat and it's hard not to come on a nature retreat without some preconception or expectation or, or desire for some pleasurable experiences. Hiking and, you know, blissing out in nature and feeling one with the roses and whatever it is, we usually come with some desire, right? We rarely come on a retreat and go, okay, I'm signing up for that retreat because I really want to deal with my back pain and my <laughs> deficiency. That sounds really great to sit with for a week. No, we don't do that. We go, oh, if I see it, it's really cool, there's mountains, we'll be hiking, I'll be outside and I'll be happy. And I was mentioning in the group, there's an interesting study being done around memory and time and how we e- evaluate past experience and our the way we review past experience, like a retreat, is really distorted. So if we, have a ten, we go on a 10-day retreat, nine days are miserable, but the 10th day is good, maybe because we're leaving, whatever, <laughs> we, we, the mind aggregates the memories and doesn't, and doesn't think of it as like, oh, it's a 10% good experience. No, it, it takes the last part of the experience and significantly outweighs the ending with all the rest of it. So it's like 50-50, last day and the rest of it. And we think, oh, it was a good retreat. And we sign up again. <laughs> and then we come here, as people reported, and the day one, it's like, oh, God, it's really hard. I hate this. Why did I come? It was like, didn't I not remember anything? Like, <laughs> so we do that. You know, we're funny. You know, people go on those 10-day Goenka retreats. They're the hardcore boot camp. How many people have done a Goenka retreat? You, right? you sit for 13 hours a day, hour-long sittings, two hours you're not allowed to move. There's no walking, there's no stretching, there's nada except sitting in the hall and feeling a lot of pain until you, until you find the samadhi the, and, and to, to, to move through it. You know, and towards the end, there's a lot of bliss can arise, a lot of you know, ease and, and, and joy and rapture and all kinds of things. But you don't remember the first seven days of excruciating pain. And you go, oh, that was cool, I'll do that again. <laughs> and we go there and like, oh, God, didn't I remember this? Brutal. So, so maybe you're having some of that, right? We come with these preconceptions, these expectations. Oh, my last retreat was great. This one's going to be even better. I'm going to pick up right where I left off, which sometimes can happen, but not always. 
And so maybe you're tired or grumpy or irritable or restless or not liking the cold or you know, all kinds of things. And, and there's, so there's a craving for, oh, please, some pleasure. Craving for lunch. Oh, finally, something pleasurable. Craving for dinner. More pleasure. Cheese toasties. Like, how good can that be on my trip? <laughs> Roast potatoes. Like, for me, that's like heaven. Like, all right. Who cares about my knee pain? I got roast potatoes. And I'm going for seconds and thirds. So notice this movement, this leaning forward towards pleasure. Notice how we manipulate our experience to try and optimize and maximize pleasure. Nothing wrong with pleasure. Pleasure is a beautiful thing. And as we become more aware and awake, we actually experience a lot more pleasure. Becoming more mindful, more aware, one over time experiences, in my experience, a lot more joy, a lot more delight, a lot more rapture, a lot more um, beauty. Because we're awake, we're present, we're not lost in our thoughts and our dramas and our stories. But to notice, you know, if there's some grasping, maybe you, you know, after breakfast, you've got an hour, so you go for a hike, and there's some, oh, I'm gonna, I want to get to that top of that ridge. And as soon as we've set that goal, in my experience, it completely mars the hike. You know, because we become a destinator, not a journeyer. Um, and we, we're set on an experience in time in the future which, which diminishes what's happening in the present. So just notice that when you intend to do something, how that can uh, notice the intention, how that impacts the experience. And as I talked about, you know, this is not to not welcome and enjoy joy. There's a lot of pleasure and delight and rapture and happiness that can come from being outside, from being in the mountains, from being present and aware to all this beauty. So it's not about welcoming that, but notice when that becomes, got to have it, got to continue, got to, you know, and then hating anything that interferes with that. Maybe having a little blissful moment by the river and somebody comes chomping right up behind you and ruining your little moment, your river moment, my river moment. This is my river, people. And we get all contracted and reactive to our fellow Sangha. So we have the movement towards wanting, grasping, longing, sense desire, or we, 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 we whip that desire up in our mind. We don't like what's happening, so we get lost in a fantasy as a way of creating pleasure. We get a lot of pleasure through thinking, except when we don't want thinking to happen, then it's not so pleasurable. But uh, a lot of what arises on a nature retreat is also the second hindrance, which is aversion. When we experience and encounter that which we don't want, don't like, we experience as unpleasant, and we uh, get caught in a lot of reactivity to it. Whether it's an internal experience that we're not liking, not wanting, an external experience in the environment, 
with people, with this place, with the teaching, with whatever, doesn't matter. Same tendency. When we experience something as unpleasant, unwanted, unliked, without when we're not mindful, we, we habitually recoil. It's a part of our evolutionary biology. If it's unpleasant, we contract. And we have two modes of relating to the object that triggered the unpleasantness. Either we want to crush it, get rid of it, or we want to run away and avoid it. So again, we move towards or away, both in reaction to this unpleasantness. So, talked about the coldness. That's one way we get to work with it. Anytime that you're cold... Can you notice the unpleasant sensation and feeling in the body? It's just sensation. It's fleeting, passing, unpleasant sensation that we then physically contract, mentally contract, and and suffer around it. We don't have to suffer if we're cold. We can feel cold without suffering, or we can feel cold and feel miserable. Of course, there's different degrees. You know, if you're really perishing in, on the verge of pneumonia, it's a whole different thing. But if it's just a, you know, some peripheral part of your body that's cold, or you know that it's fleeting, notice, notice the pain of the contraction. Notice how the contraction, the resistance, the hatred, is often worse than the, than the tingling of cold in the feet or the tingling of cold in the hands. From a perspective of awareness, it's just tingling sensation. Sometimes piercing, sometimes stabbing, numbing. Sometimes the cold gets hot because it's so cold. Numb. Can we find ease in the midst of that? I have a lot of friends who are doing the cold shower practice. Part of the understanding that that um, you know is part of our evolutionary heritage. You know, we didn't grow up with hot showers. We grew up with much more exposure to cold, and that 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 exposure to cold is actually very healthy. But it's also unpleasant until you can find a frame for it that makes it okay. I remember reading uh, one of um, Tom Brown's books. And Tom Brown's a study with a, a Native American elder, and after he died, he went to the woods for a couple of years in, in New England and lived out rough uh, with nothing but a machete and a, an axe and uh, built a shelter, had bear skins or deer skins for clothing, and he acclimatized to cold. You know, New England gets down to minus 40, 30 sometimes. And he had a very different relationship to cold, which I found very intriguing. So, so to notice what arises for you here that's unpleasant. Maybe it's the aches and the pains of your body. Maybe you have chronic pain, chronic injury. Maybe the heart is really in turmoil or sad or grieving or feeling anxiety or fear or 
concern about the future or loved ones or sick or in many, many ways that the heart is troubled and, and hard to be with. And again, the invitation is how do I meet this? How do I welcome this? How do I hold it with kindness or not? How do you meet the tenderness and the vulnerability of the heart? And life will always keep presenting situations and circumstances and relationships and that bring up difficult emotions that are hard to be with. And I'm sure you've been feeling them here at times. And amidst the joy, maybe the sorrow. You know, f- you know, for many of us, I'll talk more about this later in the retreat, you know, feeling the joy in nature is now conjoined with feeling grief about nature. Feeling our love of the natural world is also corresponding grief of the destruction that's happening. How do we hold these tender, painful places? So our practice of awareness is to notice when these difficult experiences arise, to notice if we can receive them Hold them, allow them, feel them. Oh, grief. My heart's heavy today with sorrow for the earth. My heart's tender for some loss that I'm feeling in my personal life. I'm feeling anxious and worried about upcoming changes. Oh, anxiety. Oh, old friend. Okay, like this. Trembly, heart beating, breath short mind racing. How can I support my, my being, my body, my heart to ground, to stay centered, to notice the support of the earth, the community here, of the beauty. This is a poem from who um, is a Sufi poet, teacher, talking about loneliness and welcoming the loneliness. He says, don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Something is missing in my heart tonight, has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of the divine absolutely clear. Rilke talks about, he says, uh, these nights, uh, these inconsolable nights, how we squander them uh, and look beyond them to see their ending rather than actually live our way into them. It's a very different orientation. We tend to run from the unpleasant. We tend to run from pain. We run from heartache. We run from difficulty. But as Ajahn Chah once said, a great Thai forest master, he said, by running away from suffering, we run towards it. By running away from suffering. How many of you have 
run away to, I don't know, Hawaii or Australia or some deep canyon or mountain or somewhere to get away from your sorrows or your crazy mind and you're sitting you know, up at 16,000 feet on Annapurna Mountain in Nepal and your crazy mind shows up. And you go, damn it! I thought I'd left you back in California. God. It's worrying and agitating and spinning and fretting. And All right. By running away from suffering, we run towards it. It follows us and usually slaps us in the face. Wakes us up. So there's a lovely poem from a uh, uh, teacher, um, Jennifer Wellwood, that I read a lot, called Unconditional. And she says, Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I welcome, no, each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed. Each con- Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed. And maybe you've had this experience. You know, this is particularly true with grief, with loss. We enter into that river of sadness and heartache and we let its waves come and washes over us. And it transforms us. We become transformed. We become more tender. We feel the universality of suffering. We feel the commonality of our human pain and our shared loss. We feel compassion for the world. We become tenderized by these things. When we can welcome, you know, that poem by Rumi, the guest house, you know, welcome and entertain them all even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight, the joy, the shame, the malice. Invite them in. This practice is a way to live well. Happiness is available. Please help yourself. Resist and you suffer. Welcome and allow and understand and liberate and find a sense of well-being in the midst of the fire, not away from it. Another of the, the tendencies, the obscurations that the Buddha spoke about was doubt, self-doubt. 
Very often we feel a nagging voice, the critic, the inner critic, the self-judging, the undermining, the belittling, the shaming, the not feeling good enough, feeling deficient, feeling unworthy, feeling unlovable. Very strong, very painful, deep-rooted streams in our psyche. Really important to notice, to name, to feel, to see with awareness, to hold with compassion. When I started practice many moons ago, I I had a lot of self-hatred and a lot of self-judgment and anger and I was very hard on myself and um, you began to see you know how mean that voice was how how undermining and um, also began the practice of loving kindness which was a you know, beautiful way to plant a different voice, a different stream, a different way of relating and talking to myself that was kinder or accepting or loving. It was very sort of weird in the beginning to do that because I was so used to being hard on myself. But to turn to myself and wish myself well or to be free of pain, you know, it, was like a, it was like, oh, this is a very different way of holding myself and began to listen less to the critic and listen, believe its stories less and began to see myself in a clearer light like that that quote that I read from Fenelon, the Archbishop. Um, all that seeing, you know, if, if we're not holding ourselves with self-compassion, all that seeing of our stuff becomes the... Uh, the um, ammunition for the critic to, to, to ridicule ourselves and beat ourselves up. So we need to hold whatever arises, not just with clarity, but also with compassion. We didn't choose to be neurotic. We didn't choose to feel deficient. We didn't choose to have preverbal trauma. We didn't choose to have whatever it is that you've come into this life with. We didn't choose to have loss, heartbreak. So holding that, not listening to the voice of doubt, of self-judgment, holding ourselves kindly with forgiveness, forgiveness for our foibles, forgiveness for our humanness, for our vulnerability, you know, the critic is very often alive in, in our meditations. Not concentrated enough, not mindful enough, not compassionate enough, not kind enough. You know. But the, the critic has no room in our meditation practice. An irrelevant voice, a very mean, destructive voice. We do our practice and we let go of the result. We sit down, we do our best, we're focused or not, we're concentrated or not. What's important is we're here, we're doing our practice, and let the practice do its work over time. It will do its work. This is a um, voice, uh, words from John O'Donoghue. He says, This is the time to be slow 
lie low to the wall until the bitter weather passes. Sorry, sounds weird. Let me start again. Time is, this is the time to be slow. Lie low to the wall until the bitter weather passes. Try as best as you can not to let the wire brush of doubt scrape from your heart all sense of yourself and your hesitant light. If you remain generous, time will come and you will find your feet again on fresh pastures of promise where the air will be kind and blushed with beginning. So when the, when the voice of self-doubt came to the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment and also throughout his teaching life, he would say, Oh Mara, I see you. Mara is the voice of, is the personification of the unconscious, of ignorance, death. And you'd say, Oh Mara, I see you. I see you. So when your critical, nagging, self-doubting voice is arising, you say, Oh Mara, I see you. Thank you for your opinion. Have a nice day and go bother somebody else. Thank you for your point of view. I'm not so interested, thank you. I'm going to get on with my meditation now. Thank you very much. And we continue not listening to that distorted negative voice. So, to just to sum just to summarize um, you know, many things arise in the course of retreat, in the course of meditation, in the course of our time here in life. Um, habits, tendencies, hindrances, whatever you like to call them, obstacles, ways that we're in contention with life and ourselves through aversion and resistance, through grasping and attachment, through doubting ourselves, and many others that you could fill in for yourself. So we're learning to be present to those, to hold them with a kind attention, to see that they too are fleeting. None of this stuff is permanent. It might stay around for a while, but actually doesn't last in the moment. Always ebbing and flowing. So we practice like this. Let's just sit for a moment, let these words settle. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.